It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional sport water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. Amy McGrath's run for Congress has received national attention because her life story is amazing. Today we talk with Amy about how that life story translates to leadership. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. Before we dive into the week's news and our conversation with Amy McGrath, we want to invite you to come see us live and in person in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania on November 17th. We'll have a link in the show notes where you can buy your tickets at the beautiful Majestic Theater. It's going to be an awesome event. We're really interested in doing more in-person events because there's a quality to that kind of discussion that as wonderful as the internet is, you just can't get otherwise. So we hope you'll come out and see us in Gettysburg. If you are new to Pantsy Politics, we begin every episode with a brief discussion of the stories of the week. We try to keep it brief. Sometimes it gets a little longer than brief. <laughs> and then we have a gratitude moment where we share what we're thankful for. 
Um, we particularly try to focus on ways to highlight people who are doing work who aren't of our party affiliation that we're grateful for. And then we transition to our main segment, which today will be our interview with Amy McGrath. We're so excited about it. And we end by talking about what's on our minds outside of politics. So there is a lot of news surrounding the Mueller investigation and bananas things both the Trump administration and their representatives said, did, etc. But we decided we didn't want to talk about the circus this week. <laughs> because the circus story is huge in the moment, right? And 10 seconds yeah. later, it's something else. And yeah. the truth is, we just got to wait and see what happens. Yeah. And it feels very much, I'm starting to feel like, like you can just tell when the media doesn't have, the mainstream media doesn't have a lot to talk about because they really push that the latest ever little inch of development with the investigation or Julie, Rudy Giuliani saying truth isn't truth. Like they're just, they, they're on it because they don't, it's a sort of a slow news cycle right now with regards to the president doing anything outrageous beside his regular old outrageous t- tweeting. So we thought we would check in around the world where there is a lot of news and a lot of things that are important, impactful, not only to the people in those countries, but to people all over the globe. Yeah, it shouldn't be a slow news cycle because there is a lot of substance happening. We're going to start in Venezuela, where there is a serious economic crisis happening. They are in year four of a reception. The monthly minimum wage is not enough to buy a kilo of meat. That's a dollar, they said. It's a dollar. The International Monetary Fund has predicted inflation in Venezuela will exceed a million percent. I've never seen a million percent in serious writing anywhere, but that's the prediction for inflation. But that makes sense if you're only making a dollar a month. So President Nicolas Maduro, and I use the word president lightly, is issuing banknotes this week that are going to devalue their currency, the Bolivar, by 96%. So it's going from 285,000 Bolivars per dollar to 6 million per dollar. I mean. He's going to highly subsidize gas prices, increase the corporate tax rate, and provide a 34 times increase to the minimum wage, going up to the equivalent of $28 per hour. He says that this is all linking their currency to the Petro, which is a cryptocurrency that has been called just a sham by Mm. outlets that cover this sort of thing. Economists say at best this is a facelift. At worst, it's going to make things a lot worse because increasing the minimum wage that much is going to cash strap Venezuela's corporations. This is a big problem. My favorite part is he said they're just going to come up and they're just going to like drop some zeros. Did you see that part? Yes. Like they're just going to they're going to drop off some five zeros. It's no, it's fine, y'all. It's no big deal. Look, I'm not an economist, but I know you don't get to just drop zeros and think the problem is solved. That's for dang sure. They said, I heard on NPR this morning that 7% of Venezuela's population has fled the country. 7%. Which adds to this problem, right? Yeah. So you have a terrible economy, and then you have people fleeing. So you get brain drain, right? Talented Mm -hmm. people going elsewhere. You also have a labor shortage. Plus, you have international sanctions and lots of sanctions from the United States that make financing coming into the country almost impossible. And I'm going to put some extra links about this in our uh, patrons email that goes out on Wednesday. What I think is happening right now, it's so circular because Mm -hmm. we've put these sanctions in place because we don't like Venezuela careening to a dictatorship, right? And, And there are horrible... Um, oppressive acts by the president 
hoarding of resources for himself. I mean, he, he is a very bad dude. Yeah. And at the same time, I think he is likely to stay in power because money isn't flowing in the country and because the economy continues to get worse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's been tons of protests, tons and tons of protests, but and the opposition is hoping like this will be the final straw. But it's like you said, I think when, you know, when everyone is so desperate to provide for their basic needs. I mean, you do get desperate people willing to do desperate things to change the circumstance, but also, like, you're just trying to deal with the next meal, much less trying to think through how to change the administration of your country. A lot of dictatorships have flourished in poor economies, right? Mm -hmm. That's a lesson from history. So that's Venezuela moving to Turkey now, where we always have lots of tension with Turkey. It's an enormously complex country. Early Monday morning, three shots were fired outside the United States embassy in Turkey, and that incident is being investigated. The president has been tweeting about the detention of an American pastor who was accused of espionage in Turkey. Erdogan is continuing his sort of grab for power. I think Turkey has for so long been seen as the best hope for a democracy in the region, and those hopes are rapidly being extinguished as he continues to consolidate power and become more and more authoritarian authoritarian. And I just, I don't think the tweets are going to help. I'm just going to be honest. In Africa, there has been an Ebola outbreak. The Democratic Republic of the Congo has lost 49 people to Ebola in August so far. And the World Health Organization thinks about 2,000 people have come into contact with it. This is the 10th time since 1976 that this has happened. Hmm. A huge part of the problem, according to the World Health Organization, is violence. Health workers cannot travel freely in the country. And the violence is happening because, and you, and you probably have heard this, you know, at some point along the way, but connecting it to an Ebola crisis, I think, really drives it home. The Congo is rich in conflict minerals. So you have these rebel groups seizing control of mines, selling off the minerals, and keeping the country in perpetual poverty and instability and violence. I found this quote from National Geographic that just sent chills down my spine. He said, it doesn't make any sense until you understand that militia-controlled mines in eastern Congo have been feeding raw materials into the world's biggest electronics and jewelry companies and at the same time feeding chaos. Turns out your laptop or camera or gaming system or gold necklace may have a smidgen of Congo's pain somewhere in it. Mm. I also heard that they're concerned some of the health workers themselves might have become infected and spread be sort of a part of the spread of Ebola, which I just can't fathom how to contain the spread of a virus when you can't when the when the health workers can't move freely. And then you're also concerned about health workers being infected themselves. So there are three thousand two hundred thirty doses of the vaccine for Ebola available in the Democratic Republic of Congo right now. And the World Health Organization has given permission for them to be deployed. That is also the kind of fact, when I think about biological terror and climate change and sort of the challenges of the next hundred years, when I read a statistic like, here is the exact number of vaccines we have for something, it gets me in a dark place. Mm -hmm. We also wanted to speak quickly about the flooding in India 
In one of the southern provinces, the monsoon season has been particularly bad since May. There have been floods, landslides, 350 people have been killed, and more than 800,000 people have been driven from their homes. The flooding seems to be receding, but there's still a lot of work to be done in that area of India. And then moving on to Yemen, I talked on The Nightly Nuance this week about the bomb that killed 40 school children who were on a field trip in Yemen and the horror of the United States' involvement there. This weekend, it was reported that that bomb was supplied to Saudi Arabia by the United States. Mm. Lockheed Martin made it. We sold it to Saudi Arabia. Our Defense Department has said that it doesn't make tactical targeting decisions for Saudi Arabia, but it does help with targeting plans. And the rationale for our continued involvement is so thin here, which is something I got myself very worked up about when I was doing my nightly nuanced research. More civilians have been killed in the last year in Yemen than ever before. So if we are involved to help with targeting decisions, we are not making it better. Mm-hmm. Bob Menendez is the ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and he is trying to hold up another weapons sale to Saudi Arabia and the UAE right now. So this is something that Congress can help with. And if this is an issue that calls out to you, it might be a good one to contact your representatives about. Bob Menendez is my former boss, so that makes me very proud. Also, we wanted to speak to the possible ceasefire between the Afghani government and the Taliban offered by the Afghani president. Taliban has not yet responded, but it would release hundreds of prisoners to celebrate an Islamic holiday. There has been several terrible attacks in Afghanistan over the last week or so by the Taliban, and so hopefully this ceasefire will save some lives. And then finally, we wanted to acknowledge the passing of Kofi Annan. He was the first black African to head the United Nations. He did that for two successive five-year terms beginning in 1997 during a really tumultuous time in the world. He was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2001. And boy, did he have a difficult job. Mm -hmm. He tried to be sort of the world's moral authority, but had to do all of that through influence, not really power. So it's, it's the end of an era, really, with his death. Yeah, he's who I always think about when the United Nations, because sort of as I came a political age, he was the head for so long. And so he's always sort of the person I envision. And it, again, I mean, think about the five terms beginning in 1997. That's through two, that's through September 11th. That's through um, all the changes in the Middle East. And I, I mean, I think he did a, a really good job and was a great example of leadership of the United Nations. As the last part of the section, we'll share what we're grateful for. Beth, what are you grateful for this week? I am grateful for Joe Biden's new initiative called As You Are that's being conducted through the Biden Foundation. This is a campaign to collect stories from LGBTQ youth, parents, siblings, educators, and allies. And it educates the public about how we've come a long way on LGBTQ rights, but we really need to get into more affirmation and acceptance and support now. It's not just legal rights. It's also the fact that we still have very high suicide rates and depression rates among this population. We have a lot of homelessness among this population. And a lot of that is because of family rejection and community discrimination. And so the Biden Foundation intends to share research and best practices and stories. And the first video coming out of this campaign is absolutely beautiful. I think this is a wonderful way to use the platform that Joe Biden has. And I really appreciate that he's doing it. Well, I wanted to 
express a moment of gratitude for First Lieutenant Marina A. Herrell. I thought this was an appropriate one for Amy McGrath's presence on our show. She is the leader of a platoon of roughly 35 men, and she is the first woman in the Marine Corps to lead an infantry platoon. So there's been a lot of opposition to women leading platoons in the past. She said, I wanted to do something important with my life. I wanted to be a part of a group of people that would be willing to die for each other. She initially drew jabs, but Lieutenant Harrell soon earned her platoon's respect. She's one of us, said one of her members of the infantry platoon. So yay for women leadership in the military. And that will be a great transition to our conversation with Amy McGrath. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional support water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year is going by so quickly, and I had a little bit of a moment of panic about it this week. I thought to myself, I'm losing track of time. It's going so fast. It's going to be December before I know it. My kids are growing up, and I just kind of was spinning out. And I stopped, and I closed my eyes, and I pictured my last therapist, who I haven't seen since the end of 2020. But I remember the way he talked me through these issues, and I sort of channeled his energy I put my feet on the ground and thought, this is just how time feels now. And there's nothing wrong with that or right about it. It just is. But those skills that I learned in therapy are so important to helping me take a second to celebrate what's going right and decide what I want to adjust for the rest of the year. If you're thinking of starting therapy, which I cannot recommend enough, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Pantsuit. The second most stressful thing after planning a trip is packing for it. This is true. This is a true story. I have just told you the clothes I have don't fit. They don't go together the way I want them to or I'm missing some essential piece. And then I discovered Quince. It's my go-to for high-quality vacation essentials. Like this premium European linen dress that's going to get us all through the heat wherever we're traveling. Blouses and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, premium luggage options, and so much more. All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than their similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to all of us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I got big plans for my Quince chiffon pleated skirt in Japan. They like a loose, flowy look over there to battle the heat. I will be adopting that strategy with that skirt. Pack your bags with high quality essentials 
from Quince. Go to quince.com slash pantsuit for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash pantsuit to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash pantsuit. Amy McGrath is the Democratic candidate for Congress in our home state of Kentucky's 6th Congressional District. She is a former Marine fighter pilot and was the first female Marine to fly in an F-A-18 on a combat mission. She is the married mother of three children, and she burst onto the political scene with her viral first campaign video, Told Me. And we are so excited to welcome her to Pantsuit Politics. So, Amy, when I was reading all the, the coverage of your race, one of my favorite little snippets that I read was that you had different types of yard signs for different parts of the district, which I think was such a cool idea. And then right after I read that about you and was thinking about your race and the choices you're making, I read this really great quote um, from an online journalist who I really love and respect who's been following Beto, Beto O'Rourke around. And she was talking about how he's showing up in places, too, where he doesn't have much of a base that have been flattened into a bright red areas, just reduced sort of to Trump country. And she says to show up is to underline how you try to serve your constituents, rural and urban, independent and far to the right or left, religious or non-religious, employed or struggling to find work, young and retired, which isn't to say that you'll always please everyone. No politician on either side ever can, but that they matter and are worthy of your time even if they didn't vote for your party last time, especially if they didn't vote for your party last time. And that made me think so much of the campaign you're trying to run. And I wonder if you could just speak to how you got that space where you feel yeah. like, you know what, I'm not going to follow the traditional playbook. I'm not just going to turn out my base. I want to talk to everybody. So one, I felt deeply that we had to let, learn the lessons of 2016. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the big lessons of 2016 is that we had, whether you agree with this or not, we had one candidate who was perceived to not try, to not try to show up in some of these areas. Mm -hmm. And we had one candidate who was perceived to, whether you agree with it or not, to, to at least show up. You know, whether you agree with him or not on these issues. And I think that 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 really does matter. What solidified it for me um, was I, I have an aunt. Uh, my, my husband's aunt lives on a farm in West Virginia. And when I was thinking about running and had decided to run, I remember taking the kids with Eric to her farm to visit. And Aunt Velma is, um, you know, everything you can probably think about um, a, an, an older woman who lives on a farm, you know, she, she's just, um, she's, she's a lovely person, sort of maybe set in her ways a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember talking to her and, and saying, Aunt Velma, this is, this is what I want to do. And her first response was, um, oh, honey, you know, don't, don't do that. Uh, politics is, is too nasty. And you're, you're such a nice girl, you know, you're <laughs> such a nice girl. Don't, don't do this. And that was her response was, oh, well, you, you, you know, don't do this. And then a month later, we, we come back and she had some time to process it. She was really not for it initially. She just was not for, for me doing this. A month later, we come back to, to visit and the kids go outside to play on the farm and everybody goes outside. And Aunt Velma says, uh, hey, hey, uh, hey, honey, stay back here. <laughs> I was like, okay. And so we sat at the table and she had a list of things 
that she wanted to address with me. Wow. And it was it was her list of things she had always wanted to tell people in government. Mm. Everything from from what she felt about welfare to how she felt about, you know, you name it. And basically, she had a month to process this and she she told me all the things she wanted change or all the things she thought was unfair in our country. It was really about fairness. Mm-hmm. And, and at the end of that conversation, we had a good conversation. I, you know, we talked about things. I said, Aunt Velma, I think you can change this, but you know, here's the other side of this. We had a really good back and forth and we agreed to disagree on certain things. And at the end of it, I realized she knew that I wasn't going to be able to change everything. Um, she, it, all she wanted was to be heard. She'd never felt like this was her chance where she could finally tell somebody what she thought. Right. And, and she knew that these issues were complex. She knew that to fix this system this way, you would have to, you would have to, you know, maybe drop out people who really need welfare or something like that. You know, I mean, it was a really good discussion and, and she knew that there was no easy answer, but she wanted to be heard. And so I just felt like, you know, that's, that's what a lot of people want. And, and that's what I want to do. I want to listen. That's how you get better. Well, I think that the results of the primary show, you're already doing that and doing it very, very well. Well, and I'm, you know, and I'm going to make mistakes along the way. And one of the things that, that, you know, you learn is you're not perfect. And Mm -hmm. I, I think, one of the things about being, I guess, a, a politician or whatever you want to call me right now, uh, it's hard because <laughs> I've never felt like this before, um, is that you just, I feel like you can't be afraid to make mistakes and be yourself. Mm-hmm. And it's going to happen. They're going to take things out of context. I mean, there's a new attack ad coming up this week, uh, taking me out of context on all kinds of things. And you just, I'm just hopeful that voters see through that and go, go see me, come, come talk to me, come listen to me, look at my writings. You know, this is, uh, this is who I am and we're not going to agree on everything. You know, it's, that's America. Well, and I think the beautiful thing about the, I'm going to show up and be a human being. And, and I'm glad you brought the attack at because the, the last one that came up when I was, you know, reading through all your stuff and watching all the ads, I was like, oh no, an attack ad. I sat down and watched it and I was like, um, okay. And I kept, I kept waiting for the other shoe to drop. Really? Like I was, I was <laughs> thought I was waiting for something to be an actual attack. Yeah. And instead it was, Amy, I told Beth, I was like, this is my impression of that. Ad. Amy McGrath is a human being and a person <laughs> in a political party. How do you feel about that? I was like, I just, it's so insulting to people's intelligence. Like, I was just so silly. It I wouldn't is. be upset about it, but I was laughing at the end. It is, but they're also going to take me out of context. I mean, they're also going to, they're going to find places. I mean, look, think about all the things that you say and all the things that you talk about in, a, in your day to day. Imagine if you were taped every single moment of that. That's, that's essentially what they're doing. And they're, and they're going to take, you know, keywords and phrases out and, and throw it back at you and, 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 and try to put it together and attack it. Cause that's all they've got. And that's the sad part. That's what people hate about politics. That's why people tune out. And yep. it's that to me is, is probably the most frustrating thing. And then of course the lies I mean, the lies are, you know, just really frustrating. <laughs> Well, I think the power of your story, though, is you, from the beginning, were not a two-dimensional character. The power of your story, and what really connected to me was the one with your adorable child running through the doctor's office with yeah. his little booty out. I was like, I get that. I feel you. I'm there with you. 
I've been there. <laughs> um, been there, been there, been there. And, but I, and, and including, and, but it's, you know, especially your military background, I think it just, it doesn't allow them to paint you as a two dimensional character. I think that's what's so powerful about the story. You know, as I've been watching your race and reading the national coverage of it in particular, I'm noticing that the story is where everyone's focused, that you have this military background, that you're a mom, that you have an amazing relationship with an amazing mother. And I think all of that is is very powerful. I feel like we're not connecting to the next dot, which is that translates into your mm-hmm. ideas. And it it seems degrading to me that people aren't connecting that next dot. That's the whole discussion we're having about identity politics in the country right now, right? It's not just that we want more women in office. It's that we want more women in office because all these things, right? That perspective informs so many things. And to me, that comes across so clearly in your foreign policy, which is enormously complex, even as you explain it in website copy. So I would (laughs) love to ask you about how your experience in the military impacts your idea of what success in Afghanistan means as one example. It's so complex and hard to explain to people who have never been to Afghanistan, you know, and this is why my foreign policy stuff is so um, large, because I just feel like it's not, there's not a black and white answer for a lot of these things. And we want, I mean, the way we grow up here in America, I mean, I, I was a tomboy, right? I grew up, you know, playing cowboys and Indians, playing, you know, good guy, bad guy. And this is the way, this is like American culture. We're the good guys and everybody else is the bad guys. Well, when you go to Afghanistan and I've done two tours there, you know, and you, you, you spend time there, um, you recognize that it, it's, there is no black and white. There are no good guys and bad guys. Okay. Um, everybody there is a survivor mm. and they're going to be with you if, if, it, if their family can survive mm-hmm. and they're going to be against you if their family can survive. So I always tell the story like, you know, when, when we as Americans, we go into a village um, and, you know, people help us or aid us or, or give us um, intelligence, and then we leave and the Taliban, you know, lops their heads off and their families. And then three years later, we come back to that same village and we want the people there to help us. You know, they, they've, they've all seen what happened the last time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, that's, that's Afghanistan. So people will be with us if, if it's, it's really about survival for them. Mm-hmm. And we just can't, you can't look and say, well, that, that 14 year old that placed an IED under a, under a bridge, when you pull the string on it, he was doing it because he wanted money to buy two goats and a wife. Mm-hmm. Because without that, he's, he, you know, he doesn't have a family or he's poor and, it's not like they're jih- radical jihadists. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> they're doing it to survive. Either that, or they fall into you know drugs, or or go, have to have to fight for the Taliban. So, it's it's so hard and complex. And how do you get through that? I mean, I think we have to work on security. Uh, we have to work with the Afghan government for security first. When you don't have security, and when your when your family is threatened, you could care less about you know, human rights, Mm -hmm. you could care less about um, voting rights or any of that stuff that we take sort of take for granted here in America. So I think the first thing, the most basic element is security. And that's what we've been trying to do um, with Afghanistan. Uh, And it's, you know, it's not easy. Um, But it's not, uh, it's not something that's black and white. 
Yeah. And you can't, and the other thing is you can't, you can't keep just, just the answer is not to just keep dropping bombs. I'm Mm. sorry. It just isn't. Uh, Mm -hmm. It doesn't work. So we're all sitting here in Kentucky having this conversation. How would you help somebody in Anderson County, Kentucky understand why Afghanistan is at all our problem in the United States? I feel like that piece has been missing from the conversation for a couple of decades now. You're you're absolutely right. And I think we need to have a healthy debate in our country about this. Um, You know, the, the, the Taliban in Afghanistan is basically a failed state. And in failed states, those are the places where these non-state actors, okay, i.e. al-Qaeda, thrive. And they are able to grow and they are able to train there. They're not, they're not, they're a lot of the, the 9-11 attackers, they were, they were from where? Saudi Arabia. They, they didn't train in Saudi Arabia because Saudi Arabia kicked them out. Mm-hmm. So they went to a place where they could train. And that was a failed state, a state that has no security, a state that, you know, um, they basically have no rules. So I think that's why Afghanistan matters, because we can't allow it to go back into being a failed state where um, radical non-state actors can train um, and potentially try to uh, harm us. I think that's it goes all the way back to that. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what I would tell them. And, and you know, we. And this is why we have to care what happens in the rest of the world. We have to care about, you know, I always talk about climate change as a national security issue. Why? Because we're going to see mass migrations. We're going to see instability like we've never seen it uh, because of that. When when you don't have any prospects um, in some of these parts of the world, you turn to these radical groups uh, who promise you the world. Um, and then train you to be a suicide bomber. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is this is what's happening. And so we 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 can't afford to look the other way. We cannot afford to be isolationists. We do not live in the world of 1900. Mm-hmm. We live in a globalized world where you can get anywhere very quickly. Where we have, um, you know, things like biological weapons um, that can move very quickly. From somebody who's been in the security sector my whole life, I look at these things and I I know what it's going to take to mitigate them. And a lot of that is robust diplomacy. It's Mm -hmm. people in our government understanding uh, what agencies like the U.S. Agency for International Development does um, and not uh, turning away, not turning and saying this is not our problem. I'm not saying we can fix everything in the world, but I'm saying for our own security, we cannot look away from some of these things. Absolutely. Well, it's like the hierarchy of needs that you're talking about, though. I think so often with voters like in Kentucky, because or like your Aunt Velma, because they don't feel heard on the most basic things affecting their life. They can't listen to yeah. maybe things they should other be otherwise paying attention to. What do you feel like as you're going through the district? What are you hearing that people were frustrated about that they just don't feel heard about? Well, I think a lot of the frustration is healthcare, and mm-hmm. um, there's a there's a basic fairness issue where people are frustrated who who believe on both sides of of this issue, right? With healthcare, yeah. there are people who who are frustrated that they have to pay a lot of money, and they look at other people who um, you know are under a system that don't pay much at all. And they just see it as a basic fairness issue, um, which I understand. Like, I think that's, that's the, like, I'm really trying to understand what the right, you know, because I'm, I'm a Democrat, I'm, I'm, I lean left. So I I really try to understand what the right is saying. 
Um, I think the disagreement on healthcare is the, the answer to that. I believe it's all, it, also our system is completely unfair right now. I mean, it really is. Um, and I, I, I find that wrong, too. I just think the answer is not to take away health care from people. Mm-hmm. I don't think to make it more fair, we should be taking away health care from people. I think we should be trying to um, ensure a better access and, and uh, more affordability for the people who can't afford it right now. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So I think that's, I think that's the fundamental difference there. Um, I think that, you know, those are our big issues. The other big issue is, is, you know, good quality jobs for many people in my district. Um, you know, they have to commute to find a, mm-hmm. a decent job. They can't really stay in the County that they grew up in because there's nothing there. And so it's, it's really difficult and I can't snap my fingers and make that better. And, but what I can't, what I think the fundamental disagreement is, you know, for me and my opponent is my opponent will say, okay, well, let's cut everybody's taxes and therefore it'll grow jobs. Well, that would be great if it actually worked, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, I mean, money doesn't grow on trees and, and we get ourselves into a a bigger fiscal mess, uh, nationally when we do that. And, and the fact is it's, it doesn't trickle, trickle down economics just doesn't, just doesn't work. It's not working. And so, you know, I think, I'm the kind of person that looks long-term. What, what do we need? What are the things that need to create good jobs? We need better infrastructure. And this goes back to my discussion a little bit earlier about our globalized world. We need 21st century infrastructure, like rural broadband. No business is going to want to come to, to you know, um, Wolf County or some of these counties if the, you can't get um, modern form of communication to the globalized world. Mm-hmm. For the infrastructure, 21st century infrastructure, world broadband and communications yeah. in the 21st century is the same as roads and bridges in the 20th century. If you don't have it, the, we're not going to have the, the economic development that we want. And so that's what I want to look at. I want to look at those types of things as, um, and I do believe that those types of things, and this may be the difference between you know, the left and the right, I do believe those things are things that government should be looking to provide. The same way Eisenhower, who was a Republican president, built the interstate highway system. Yep. We just talked about that the other week. Eisenhower didn't say, well, let's let the private sector do that. And if it's, if it's good for the private sector, then they'll build that interstate from, you know, this town to this town. He didn't do that. He said, look, this is important for our country. It's important for our security. And we, to, as, as America, as we're going to come together. He was honest about how much it was going to cost. And it was an upfront investment. And you know what? It powered our economy for like the last 50 some years. And arguably, it's one of the reasons we are the powerhouse today, our interstate highway system. And no one says today, well, not too many people say today, <laughs> well, that was a bad investment. You know, that was a great investment. And I think we need to have leaders that, that think that way again, that that is something that, that government should do and can do. You've put out this 30-page economic plan, the, the theme of which is just singing our song because you talk about ending an either-or mindset in lots mm-hmm. of different areas, especially when it comes to things like the coal communities in Kentucky. I would love to hear you talk a little bit about that. 
Yeah, it just I'm I'm so tired of coal being used as this political football um, where, you know, both sides are just beating each other up about things that, you know, just the coal is, is so important to Kentucky and it's so important to our country. It has been in the past um, and the, the future of it. I mean, they're. they're nobody is wanting it to, to just, you know, go away. And, and, uh, and I, I think lots of people care about the jobs in, in coal country. I do too. And so, but we need to be realistic about the future. I mean, when you have natural gas, when you have automation, when you have all of these things that, that, that everybody, including people in the industry are saying are the reasons why some of these jobs, uh, that we've had in the past are going away. Um, you need to have a plan for them in the future, you know, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I'm a, I'm a military officer. We plan for everything. You know, we may not right. want to go to war against North Korea, but you better believe we have a plan for it. Mm-hmm. All I'm saying is let's have a plan. Let's have a plan. If, it, if, if, if for the decline, if it, if it, if it happens, if it continues, um, and so I think to do that, we have to be honest about where, where we're going. And so in my economic plan, I talk about, you know, investments in that area. I talk about me wanting to go to Washington to make the case to my, hopefully, you know, my fellow um, members of Congress that, hey, we need to invest in, particularly in this region for a new economy, because, you know, th- this is the trend here, <laughs> whether we like it or not this is where it's going and we owe it to the the people who powered our country to look to the future you know and that's why i talk renewable energy is it is it is the future it's it's going to be um you know cheaper in the long run once we get our our, the uh, technology um under under control i mean look the u.s navy um if you look at the history of the u.s navy right we went from sailing ships to coal-powered ships, you know, to oil, um, and that was uh, that happened in the late 1800s, and then the early 1900s we went to oil, and then the mid 1900s we went to nuclear power. Guess where we're going next? We're going to renewable. Hmm. The U.S. Navy is doing all kinds of research on it. It is the wave of the future. Why? Because it's going to be tactically better. Right now, we we I mean, if you think of a of a oil-powered ship, you have to what Re- refuel. That's a strategic problem. If you look at um, most of our casualties um, in Afghanistan and in places like Iraq, guess guess where most of our casualties come from? They don't come from firefights. They come from fuel convoys, mm. from the enemy hitting our convoys, bringing fuel oh, wow. and supplies to our forward operating bases. So guess who's the leader in figuring out renewable energy from a tactical standpoint and a strategic standpoint? Our military. Wow. And so from my background, I saw this. I saw how our Navy, our Army, and our Marine Corps are looking at these um, technologies. And I, I think I'm very concerned right now that our country, because of its political resistance to this, um, is really going to, it's going to hurt us strategically. Right now, China is investing a ton of money in renewable energy. Mm-hmm. And they are gonna they are gonna have the technologies, and we are not because of our our political dysfunction on it. Yeah. And so, you know, I I I just I, I'm a I want to help our region in Kentucky. I want us to be uh, on the forefront of this. I mean, we have the people in Kentucky who understand energy. 
we should be leading on this. Um, that's that's really my message. Well, and it's like you said about central thing we keep coming back to, which is people just want to survive and be heard. It's not like I think that current or former um, coal workers, if you said, I have another plan, I have another job for you that provides us as well, is gonna, are just going to be like, no, I want to stay lo- loyal to coal. No, they just want to be able to pay their bills and That's support right. their families. Yeah. Like it, yeah. It's not like they're emotionally loyal to the energy source itself. They just want to feel heard and not feel discarded. And like, if you, like you said, if we have a plan for them so that they don't feel discarded because we've moved on to something else or because we um, want to have more renewable energy or whatever. Like that's the, that's the issue here. It's not, you know, loyalty to coal at all costs. It's I want to be able to provide for my family. That's right. And, you know, we had the same issue in, in Kentucky with tobacco, right? Mm-hmm. For years and years, tobacco was used as a political football where, we, you know, these politicians beat each other up left and right about tobacco. And at the end of the day, um, you know, the, the industry, um, who was left it out? in the cold, you know, it was the farmer. It was yeah. the farmer because we were not, we were not honest about where things were going. Um, and I think that we need to do that here. Um, and let's, let's just do our best to make sure that we have uh, a plan for, for the region so we can get good jobs, so we can rebuild it. It all goes back to what I've been talking about with infrastructure with rural broadband, with bringing 21st century jobs. And that that also wraps in around two other major issues that I talk about a lot, education and healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, we, <laughs> we can't drop those things. You know, to get good jobs, you have to have a workforce. That workforce has to be educated. And we have to continue to make investments and not cut investments in those areas. I think that workforce development piece is one of our greatest challenges as a state. And and our education system, certainly, but adult education as much as anything. Because coal and tobacco are great examples of how, uh, yes, people just want to be able to provide for their families, there is a culture around that work, though, right? And there, there is a set of skills and, and an absence of other skills. I mean, I've heard lots of people say, I've been doing this my whole life. What else would I do? And mm. we don't have good answers right now in Kentucky for you can do lots of other things. And here, is, here are the people who are going to show you how to take what you've learned and apply it to something else. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. And and I do think that um, that's why I want to go. And I want to uh, try to, again, make the case uh, in Washington that we need investments in, 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 this, in this region, um, that we cannot just look the other way. Um, let's, let's invest. Because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, coal powered this country. And I feel like sometimes, you know, the, the, the rest of the country sort of, we, we, uh, they owe it back to, to this region to, to, you know, because we, we literally made, you know, or this region literally powered our country. Um, and I just think that's really important. Thinking about Washington's impact locally, what are you hearing about tariffs from voters in central Kentucky? (laughs) The tariff issue, I mean, it's, it's just so ridiculous. Um, and when I talk to people, they, they are concerned. I mean, you talk to the distilling industry. I mean, yeah. this is like they're being attacked um, on this. And it's really going to hurt their companies. You know, it's really going to hurt their industry. Um, Toyota 
has come out and been really adamant against the tariffs for obvious reasons. It's going to hurt them. That's the soybean farmers um, out here. It's going to hurt them. The problem with the soybean uh, industry and, the, and that, that agriculture industry there is if if they lose their market, they're never they're not likely to get it back. And so, you know, while as well as with, you know, the distilling, maybe maybe they could bounce back if if, uh, you know, people want to go back to, you know, Kentucky bourbon. But once the once you buy a soybean from another country, you know, um, they're going to just keep that in the in they're not going to come back to the United States once the, the once this whole mess is figured out. Right. And that's the problem that I have is that one, this whole, I, nobody wins a trade war. Nobody wins a trade war. I mean, I, this is just ridiculous what we're doing. I don't know why we're doing it. Um, and the, and the other aspect to this is we really have Republicans in Congress who really aren't just aren't doing anything about it. I mean, they're upset. They all say they're for free trade, but because they're too scared, they don't have the courage to stand up to their own, you know, the, the presidents, because the presidents of their party, and they're so, too worried about their political, um, you know, backlash, they don't have the courage to do what's right. You know, and my opponent will sit there and say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to Vice President Pence about this, and I'm telling him that I'm very concerned about the tariffs. Well, great, you talk to the one guy who has no power on earth? <laughs> I mean, that's awesome. Yeah. It's not enough. There's this thing called the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3. Look it up. It says that Congress has the power to regulate interstate and foreign commerce. You could do something about this. And they refuse to do it. And it's hurting people. That's yeah. my problem. And that goes to my core message of putting your country above your political party. Look, I'm a Democrat, but... If my political party goes off the deep end, I'm not going to be with them. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, this is this is a perfect example of you need to do what's right for your country. You need to do what's right for your people, the people here in the sixth district, the industries here in the sixth district. And he's not doing that. Listen, <laughs> I mean, that's the argument they've been making to Kentuckians for years, which is we have the access and we have the influence. So you should vote for us. I mean, it's that's a de- especially the argument they're making now. And I mean, I think that's the art- argument Senator McConnell's been making for years. Well, I've been here long and I know how to pull the strings and you wouldn't want to give up all this access and influence. But like for now, I mean, I think we're all seeing now the emperor has no clothes. It doesn't matter how much influence or access you have if you won't pull the strings of power for the, the constituents in your district. Well, yeah. And I kind of feel like in this issue, you know, you, if you flip, if we're lucky enough to flip the House and, and give it to, to, to Democrats and, and the Senate, wow, we could actually do something. We could pass mm-hmm. a bill that, that, that uses uh, our constitutional powers <laughs> to, to counter what the president's doing in this area. So, I mean, I just feel like, you know, that's, that's great that you say you have all this influence. Well, we'll actually... Uh, what what you do is you have a constitutional power that you're unwilling to use right now. Mm-hmm. To me, it's more important to have people in office that have the the courage to do their job, you know, right. and to and to do what's right instead of you know telling people you have all this influence. I think that's why I get so worked up about this dichotomy. Not to beat up on the New York Times, but the article talking about how this is kind of resume versus ideology. I think that is such a false dichotomy. I mean, it's really about like 
who do we want to hire to go represent us in the face of all kinds of issues? You know, who do we think will act and and do? Mm -hmm. And we aren't going to agree with everything that either of these candidates would do, probably. But but who do we think has the fortitude to go take this on in Washington right now? It's who do you trust? I mean, Mm -hmm. it does come down to who do you trust? Um, And I think that you have to take a take a step back and look also at how candidates get into office, what, who, who's funding their campaigns, mm-hmm. um, because it does go back to who do you trust. If, if your campaign is funded by particularly special interest groups, um, that's who you're, you know, you're going to work for. Um, and if your campaign is funded by people, um, that's, you know, that's what I'm most proud of. I mean, the fact that my campaign is, is funded by people and yes, it's people in Kentucky, it's people all around the country, but it's people. Mm-hmm. And I always say, you know, that, that veteran in Iowa that is, 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 uh, handing or, or donating 25 bucks to my campaign, you know, he's not, he's not handing me draft le- legislation, right? Oh, he, he just wants better government. And, you know, in the people of Kentucky, I've got more donors from Kentucky than than all of my opponents combined. Wow. Entire cycle. Um, And I just feel like that's awesome because I don't I don't owe anybody anything. I just Mm -hmm. owe the voters and and the people here, you know, my best, my best, my honesty and my best. And it's a big experiment. Can you can you run for office? And be somebody who's honest. Can you run for office and be somebody who says, you know, I'm going to, I want to earn your trust that I'm going to be somebody who's going to, you know, do the right thing because that's what I've done in my life. That's what I feel like I've done in my life for this country. We've talked to a lot of women running for office and as you're out there building your trust, what's been the sort of the most surprising thing for you as you're out there in the district, just doing the hard campaign work? A lot of what's been surprising to me has been, um, not only that just the tremendous amount of energy, but the people who are new to politics, mm-hmm. um, who are sort of coming out of the woodwork. And I really um, connect with them in particular, probably more so than the um, longtime established Democrats here, um, because I, I connect with them because that, that's me, too. Right. And, you know, I, I sort of tell people I sort of woke up in 2016 where I felt like we were doing OK and I didn't really have to do much for my country politically, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, and then 2016 just sort of changed me. The whole election cycle, everything about it. I mean, everything. And there are a lot of people that feel that way. There are a lot of people who come up to me and say, you know, I've never been involved in politics ever. And I, I just want to help. I, I need to help. I need to help. Wow. And that has been um, enormously um, um, surprising, I think, to me a little bit, but also encouraging because people, um, they realize that they have to be an active part of our democracy. Our democracy is not just something that is commercials on TV mm-hmm. and voting in uh, in the ballot box. Um, it's, it's more for a lot of people. I mean, I have 85 year old women coming up to me saying I've never had a yard sign in my yard ever. Oh, wow. Um, for any political candidate, where can I get your yard sign? You know, I mean, that's, that to me has been the most humbling. And I just, you know, I'm just going to work very hard to, to continue to earn their trust. And I'm going to make mistakes along the way. Believe me, I am. I've already, already have. 
but um, I'm just going to plow through it and, and hope that, you know, that I get my message out and that we make a difference. That was my favorite part of your of the silly attack <laughs> is because you could tell when the person asked you who you voted for in, in the past presidential elections, you were like super confused by the question. You were just like a normal person, like, why would you ask me that? Of course, this is who I voted for. Like, it, it was so not a politician, like the the hedging and the well and the and you were just like, uh, that's what, of course, this is who I voted for. Like, that's my favorite part. I think it's so awesome because your authenticity is just so apparent. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I was stunned. First of all, I'm not used <laughs> to having cameras stuck in my face left and right. And um, yeah. so that was something that is um, really, I'm not used to it. And so yeah. I'm getting used to that, that whole, and then, you know, people who will come up to you and lie, um, who mm. are taping you and tracking you. And then this is part of the world that we live in now. And, Dang. you know, I just want to be me. And, and the thing is, is, you know, we, we all believe differently on different issues. Some of us are really progressive on things. I feel like on some issues, I'm really conservative on things. We just can't, you just can't put people in a box. And, yeah. And so it's really, um, it's a learning process for me. And there's going to be, a, like I said, there's going to be a lot of things taken out of context with, I'm just having conversations with people and, you know, they're, they're taping me and it's like, oh God. And now I know why, now I know why politicians dance around and don't say anything Yeah, because they're always being taped and it can always be taken out of context. And it's really, really sad. I mean, yeah. it's super sad that we can't, and that was that was frankly one of the appeals of Donald Trump. You know, just exactly. Donald Trump just does he just doesn't give it. He just didn't give a you know you know anything. He doesn't yep. care. And um, so that that was very it's very appealing to people. Um, and so I'm 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 learning in this process. Um, I I still want to be me. The the biggest thing about this is if there's if I wake up at any any morning and I say okay I'm not I'm not who I am anymore. That's when I'm going to stop um, because you got to stay true to yourself. And I know who I am and I got to, you know, continually make sure that, um, I don't get caught up in this, this, uh, sort of BS world of back and forth with politics. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets look just like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra concentrated liquidless laundry detergent. It's the best of all worlds. Earth Breeze is tough on stains and odors while being kind to the planet and your skin. So it's good for sensitive skin. It reduces plastic waste. All of these things are true and amazing, but let's get to the heart of it. Y'all know I have a laundry system. You know it revolves around training children as young as possible to do their own laundry. Earthbreeze sheets feels like they were invented for this because littles maybe sometimes struggle with those big, heavy jugs, or maybe you worry about the pods, but here we go. Here we go, y'all. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets. It's like the perfect solution. A child as young as two can handle these sheets. And even with toddlers, like you can get them involved. And this is a way to get them helping with laundry even before they could do it themselves. Ugh, gotta love it so much. Right now, our listeners can receive 40% off Earth Breeze just by going to earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. That's earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and claim 40% off your subscription. earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. We do quite a bit of hosting here at the Silvers household, and I think there is nothing that completes a table for dinner. Like a beautiful loaf of bread and wild grain has made that so simple because they send gorgeous loaves of sourdough bread. Lots of spins on the ingredients, but always just this 
fantastic, high-quality, easy-to-bake-in-25-minutes-or-less-from-frozen bread that turns out perfectly every single time. I also have to tell you about the free croissants for life that come with your wild grain orders, and those croissants make the morning, your brunch, maybe your late-night snack, flaky, and like you're sitting in a French cafe and they're just perfect every single time. That's what I love about Wild Grain. It's easy, it's consistent, it's fully customizable. It is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. For a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. You heard me, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit, or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. I think people are ready for that. And it strikes me that everything about your campaign has said so. And speaking of that, you have very generously shared that you listen to our podcast sometimes. And we're so grateful for that. Before we started recording, you said that you kind of had some questions for us. So uh, in our final minutes together, we we don't want you to leave thinking they hogged this whole platform. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, um, it's true. And so my sister was the one who um, introduced me to your podcast. And she basically said, um, Amy, you're going to love them. They're so down to earth. And it's so much like, you know, talking amongst ourselves. And and I thought, okay, so she was the one I have to give credit to my sister, Jane. Um, but uh, I often ask people and in a, it's really hard for me on the campaign trail now because of all the things that I that I talked about earlier with people taping you and all of this just sort of BS. But when I talk to somebody, particularly somebody who's conservative or who identifies themselves as conservative, um, and I'll tell you a quick story as to why this is so important to me. Um, I often ask them, what makes you feel like you're part of the right? What makes you feel conservative? And so that's, that's the one thing I wanted to ask Beth. But before I do, let me, let me just tell you a quick story. I used to teach at the Naval Academy and I would give my students, you know, 20 in each uh, class, a survey. And um, before the survey, it was a survey on issues. And before the survey, I would ask them, how many of you identify as Republican? And of a class of 20, this happened every semester, probably about 14 of them, would, 13 or 14 would raise their hand. And then I would say, how many of you identify yourselves as Democrats? And you might have two. 
you know, that raise their hand. This is in the U.S. military at the Naval Academy. And then I would say, how many of you identify as independents? And it would probably be maybe three would identify as three or four. And then you give them a survey, 20 minutes long online. It's one of these surveys that goes through all the all the issues. And then you can plot it out on the big screen, you know, these little dots where they're at in relation to, say, Bernie Sanders or, you know, um, big Mitt Romney, all these politicians. They'll see where those dots are and then where they fall. And guess what happened almost every single time? Now, these are these are students between the ages of 18 and 22, but in the U.S. military, um, they were really far left uh-huh. on the issues. And um, you might have one who's on the right, and then literally 19 of them were like further left than me. And, you know, I knew where I stood, you know, and and the the best compliment I got at the end of each semester, by the way, was when a midshipman would come up to me and say, hey, ma'am, are you a Republican or Democrat? I mean, they didn't know. They didn't know. And so it allowed me that it knew that I was teaching both sides, um, at least objectively. Uh, But I, I wanted to ask Beth, like, you know, what makes you and I often ask them because like why do you con- consider yourself a conservative and and um or do you not consider yourself you just say you're from the right what what do you think well I think the hard thing about that question is that the parties aren't static right you said mm-hmm. earlier if the Democratic Party went off the deep end you would say so and I feel like that about the Republican Party right now it's gone off the deep end and I'm gonna say so <laughs> Repeatedly, every week. Every week. And I'm going to get lots of email telling me that I'm not an adequate representative of the right because of that. But the the reasons that I identify as conservative aren't being represented over the past two years. I probably, were I a member of Congress, would have spent the past two years really fighting to restrain the power of the executive branch. Because Ah. that's what I care about. I care about the constitutional place of things. I think the issues in Kentucky, I think the issues in parts of Kentucky, you know, central Kentucky is a vastly different place than northern Kentucky where I live. We share a lot. western Kentucky where I live. Or or western Kentucky where I grew up. I mean... So I I think it is really important to emphasize local government, state government. I think the federal government has a place where I think we've really gone off the rails on the Republican side, even before Donald Trump mm-hmm. is acting like, because I want to restrain federal power, it must mean I want to never pay a dollar in taxes to anyone. Mm-hmm. I'm thrilled to pay taxes to support my local library. You know, I think there is a place for government. I'm not a libertarian. I think there's a place for government. But I think there is a place for each type of government and that keeping that type of government restrained to its proper role is really important. And I Mm -hmm. think that what's going on right now with the Trump administration is like, why to be conservative 101 if we're talking about my brand of conservatism, you know, because you can Mm -hmm. see how quickly the power of the federal government can be wielded in really damaging, hurtful ways. So that's where I'm coming from. And the the problem for me is that I don't have a lot of places to express that. Um, I would never, the attack ad that was just made about you could have been made about me if I were running in a Republican primary. They could have lifted quotes from this podcast. I'm pro-choice. I'm a feminist. You know, mm-hmm. like they could have done the same thing with me. So there isn't really a place for me right now, except I yeah. think trying to choose good leaders who I believe will go to Washington and actually lead um, yeah. versus just be a continued part of um, trying to appeal to the base 
mm-hmm. so that they get through the next election cycle. That's interesting. Yeah, I think we have, you know, just from this, that what you just said, we have a lot more in common. And, you know, I'm a Democrat, but, but, you know, Beth, uh, when I hear you, I, I'm, I'm like in the same, I believe the same way you do. And, you know, I look at, at somebody like uh, President Bush, the last Bush, you know, who increased the size and scope of the federal government in a big, big way after 9-11, you know this, um, took us to war, didn't, didn't, ha- didn't ask the American people to pay for it at all, mm-hmm. got us into more, uh, bigger deficits. That's not fiscally conservative. Um, and so I wonder also, where is the Republican Party? And, you know, I was an independent for many years. I wasn't always a Democrat. I, you know, and I am, I'm obviously a Democrat today, and I'm very proud of that. Um, and have been for, for more recent years. But I just feel like I want, I understand the balance. I think we need a balance, but I, I agree with you. I don't know where the Republican party is today. And, and I, I it doesn't stand for fiscal conservatism at all, at all. And I, I just, I'm worried about that because I do think we need a balance. Um, and, and I, I want to, to, you know, be the voice of reason, I guess, um, up there. So, and I do believe what you're saying with the executive branch has had too much power. And that's one of the reasons I think we need a new authorization to use military force. I mean, we've been that. at war for 17 years and Congress has punted it, you know, and it's just, it's, this isn't, this isn't what the constitution says. Um, it's enormously, um, counterproductive for our country. Uh, we, we have to, um, we have to have a debate about all these places we're in. And I'm not standing here and saying we shouldn't be there. I'm saying we need to have a debate and it's Congress's job. They got to do it. And one of my favorite ways Beth describes our sort of differing views about government and corporations as opposed to right and wrong, right and left, this is the way to do it. This is the way that isn't do it is that they work in conjunction. You have to have people that say that are conservative about the use of government say, hold on, hold on, brakes, brakes, brakes. We're not just going to put the, push the gas at all costs on things we want to do. And then I think for my side, I'm that person when we talk about the free market and the corporations and corporate responsibility. Whereas when we start talking about the private market and the private industry, whereas I'm the brakes, I'm like, uh-uh, no, we're not just going to say free for all, you know, the, the pursuit of profit will lead to good outcomes at all costs. Like I'm, I'm the one that's like, no, 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 I want brakes here. And, mm-hmm. but, and I like that you have, but you need both, you need gas and brakes for things to run smoothly. You need both. I think for so long as a Democrat, I just thought, you know, the government is great as long as Democrats are in charge. And maybe, listen, maybe some people would still like to make that argument, but we're not always going to be in charge in a democracy. It doesn't work like that. And I think what I've really learned from Beth and the conservative viewpoint is you pay attention to the structure and you think, would I like this, would I like this, this structure, even if the other side was in charge? Because if Mm -hmm. you don't, then we need to pay attention to the process and the structure. And I think right now we're just in this well, we need to be, the other side is the enemy and we need to be in charge all the time. Well, you know, good luck with that. But I don't think it's going to, I don't think that's ever going to be the case. Well, I agree. And I'm tired of, I'm tired of politicians really on both sides who refuse any good idea from the other side. Um, And this is what we've seen, uh, you know, frankly, in the McConnell era where, you know, it's no matter what happens on the other side, the only goal apparently for him is, you know, to just obstruct. To win. To win. That's all that matters. And and, and that's the problem. I mean, we we, we have got to to be better. We can be better. We just have to elect 
better people. And I think that, you know, and it does stem a little bit too from post Citizens United, money and politics and who we, who gets into office um, and how they, how they get there. Um, So it's a, it's a lot to tackle. (laughs) Well, not that you are um, out seeking the endorsement of disaffected Republican podcast hosts, but I will say (laughs) that, you know, I have read your policy statements and what I see that I love about where you are is you're, you're really saying a lot of our future challenges should not be partisan. Russian cyber attacks that's not a partisan issue. Climate change, not a partisan issue. These are just the facts. Defeating the ideology underlying ISIS, that's not partisan. These just are problems that require solutions. And you strike me as a problem solver. And I think that's uh, what we need more of. That's what I hope to do. And um, so, you know, we'll see how it goes here. And I'm just going to keep working hard and keep trying to talk to as many people as I can. Well, thank you so much for putting us on that long list of people that you're talking with. It has Mm -hmm. been an honor to chat with you, and we really um, appreciate it and wish you the best of luck. All right. Thanks to you both. I really appreciate the time. What's on your mind outside of politics, Sarah? Well, my stomach was jacked up again this weekend, so I watched a lot of TV. I've watched um, Harlots, which I've talked about on the show. It's one of my favorite star- shows. I also watched the first episode of Insecure. Have you ever seen Insecure? I haven't seen Insecure. It's so good. It's such a good portrait of female friendship. You have to watch it. It's so funny. Um, I loved that. And then I also watched Paterno, the HBO movie with Al Pacino about Joe Paterno, which was really interesting. And I watched Victorian Abdul, which I believe you rec- recommended to me a million years ago. I love Victorian Abdul. What did you think of it? I thought it was very good. I really want to go back and watch, which I also think Judy Dench is in this one, too. I want to go back and watch the one about John Brown, like when she mentioned him in the mm-hmm. movie. Have you ever seen that one? It's no, like from I the nineties, I think. It's supposed to be really good. I'm gonna go back and watch that one too, I think. But I really did love it. I thought it was a very sweet story. I I'm obs- I'm really interested in Victoria because I think she I watched, you know, uh the Victoria television show too. I just think her sort of I'ma do what I want, make it happen, and like her growth into that role is so fascinating. And then of course Judy Dench and everything. So I thought it was great. Would you recommend Paterno? Yeah, there was a lot of really interesting things I didn't know. I thought his sort of chill, the the role of his children was interesting. And like, they're like, wait. And his his sort of, they're coming to realization of what happened. His sort of not understanding what a big deal this was. You know, he only died, he died two months after it happened. So he was pretty old when it came to light. And knowing the plotting of the athletic director and the president of the college, I've said this on the podcast before. I'm so glad those dudes went to jail. They should have. They needed criminal consequences for their behavior in this whole in all of this. It was. It's just so disturbing. On a much lighter note, I want to talk <laughs> about a TV show. Also, Chad and I just started watching Making It with Amy Poehler and Nick Offerman. I was about to say, is this Nick Offerman and Amy Poehler? It looks so cute. It's adorable. It is all of the loveliness of the Great British Baking Show. With it's that meets Parks and Rec, right? It's the yeah. Great British Baking Show meets Parks and Rec. It's in this cute little barn. I would watch Nick Offerman read the phone book all Me day, every too. day. There's there Agreed. are zero things about Nick Offerman that I don't like. So it's perfect. And we actually watched the premiere and said, Jane will love this. And so Jane, my daughter, is seven. She is such a crafter. Every square inch of our house would be covered in tape and tiny pieces of paper that she has cut into something if we didn't stay on top of it. And so she watched the first episode, is delighted. She has asked us when we can watch the next episode together as a family. 
In the first episode, they had to make an animal that kind of symbolized who they are, which prompted her to go get some scraps of leather and create a ladybug for herself. So it's just... It's wonderful, and it just fills you right up. I think the two of them are doing exactly what they said they wanted to do, which is just make something nice and happy. They give people patches when they win competitions. Oh, my God. That's amazing. And they start the show by saying that the the master crafter, the person who wins, will get $100,000, but the money isn't a big deal. It's more the reward of a job well done, and it's just delightful. Okay, I'm going to watch it. I'm going to watch it with my kids. My kids love Nailed It. So, I mean, I think they definitely like this. And this is much better than Nailed It, honestly, because it is it is wholesome from start to finish. There's no sarcasm. Okay. There's no kind of failure in it. Mm-hmm. Like, it's wonderful. Okay, I'm gonna I'm I'm all in. You know, he has a movie out that's supposed to be really good where he's, like, trying to start a band with his daughter before she goes to college. I'd be happy to watch it. Nick Offerman, yeah. whatever you want to do, just take my mm-hmm. money. I want to see you do it. And I just love him and Megan— um, Malawi, is that his surname? Yes. I, I love them, and I think they're so awesome. And how he's, like, moving around because she's doing something. He's like, well, we're never going to—we've already, like, sworn we won't spend so much time apart. So he was, like, just living where she was doing her thing for a while. Mm. Oh, you know, that reminds me of something else I was thinking about. I know we're trying to keep the show sh- short, but I want to share this really quickly. I listened to the most interesting hidden brain on marriage. And this guy, this great theory about marriage societally, the Nick Offerman, Megan Lawley thing makes me think of this, and how we used to have marriage just to meet our basic needs, like at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy. And then we kind of moved up and we got love, and we wanted and we wanted marriage to meet our like ideas about romantic love. And now we've gotten even higher up the mountain of needs, and now we want marriage to like be a source of personal fulfillment. But the guy was like, you climb the mountain, you got to do more work. Oxygen gets thin. You got to bring more to the table and work on it more. And I thought that was such a good metaphor. That's so good. And it goes along with this episode of On Being. I have listened to this four times. Is this the one? I think this is the one I've been trying to listen to forever. I don't listen to anything four times, but it's Alain de Baton. Yes. Talking to Chrissy Tippett. He's talking with her about his article for the New York Times, Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. And he basically says that marriage is the triumph of hope over knowledge. The decision to love another person is always this enormous effort that our entire culture tells a love story that ends at the wedding when that is very Mm -hmm. much the beginning of the whole thing. And I think I said this in our last show, but I just keep thinking about it. He says um, compatibility is an achievement of love not a prerequisite for it. Oh, so good. We are never going to be compatible with another person, especially in all the ways that we have these expectations about. And my favorite part that I need to I need to listen to it over and over to just internalize this because I can be guilty of this. He talks about the phenomenon of sulking mm. and how you only sulk with people you're in love with because we throw all these expectations onto those people. And... Basically, we're just expressing you were supposed to read my mind and know exactly what I needed, and you didn't, and now I will sit here and pout about it. And I admit that I can do that. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. That makes so much sense. Okay. I'm going to listen to it. I'm going to listen to it. I will check back in next week after I've listened to it. Please do. It's so good. Everybody else listen to it, too. Homework. Well, we like homework, and that's a good way to end this episode. Additional homework is that if you are new to Pantsy Politics, we would love to have you join our community on social media or email. All the details of that will be after the post roll. And until we talk to you again, keep it nuanced, y'all.
Fancy Politics is produced by Dylan Garvin. Elise Knapp is our production assistant. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers, Tracy Putoff, George Niedermeyer, James Randall, Cherry Haas, Nicholas Holland, and Chad Silvers. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can connect with us on our website, www.pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. Sign up for our weekly emails and follow us on Instagram.